1: You are listening to the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Fantastic to have you with us. Expect real-life stories, expert advice. And we were asking one child and teen psychologist what to do if your child is refusing to go to school. School avoidance, whether it is those little toddlers all the way up to the teens. What are some of the reasons behind it, the risk factors and what you can do in the moment. Talking healthy eating as well, how to do a really good food shop. With fitness expert Nikki Holland, the easy swaps and some macro mathematics as well. Some of the quick ways to increase the value of your property, whether you're living in it or flipping it. And in Pets and Vets, we had a special look at osteoarthritis with Dr. Joe Edwards and went to the text line talking all health and behaviour about your furry friends. So parents, are you one of those who drop your child off at nursery only for them to come back home with you are you having a daily battle with your child to get them into their classroom or is it now an older age group where you feel like you haven't got any power in that decision at all negotiations, crying moments, things that can really set the tone for your whole day. We're talking school avoidance, school refusal today. So do feel free to share your experiences, any techniques. Anonymously, of course, if you prefer, this first hour we are delving into this topic with child and adolescent clinical psychologist Prathna Singh from Vivamus. And before we start talking about this topic, which... I'm, I'm talking about because I've had this and a lot of my friends and, and peers have as well. What's keeping you busy in clinic? What are you helping with there at the moment?
0: Thank you so much, Helen, for having me on the show today. You're so we definitely are very busy at the clinic and we're seeing a range of difficulties. I'd say anxiety is probably the most common issue that we're, we're facing at the moment. Mm. Anxiety has always been an issue with kids and pre-pandemic but I think post-pandemic we've been seeing a lot of adjustment especially getting back into school and with families as well adjusting to the different dynamics and the different factors so we're seeing a lot of anxiety. We're also seeing issues around low mood and just generally adjustment issues um, with everything that's happening here.
1: I'm going to try and be sensitive how I phrase this but when I was growing up there were kids that were worriers You worried about things, or she's a bit of a worrier. Now it seems like a lot of kids are getting this anxiety label. How do you feel about this shift that we've had in the last couple of decades?
0: Yeah, I think it's... um when we, when we work with young children, we want to move away from those labels and sometimes it's actually useful to have and to talk about it as worry. So even though we might, when we when we as psychologists look at a, a diagnostic manual, we look at these, uh, a way of understanding a mental health condition, it might be useful for us to understand it as anxiety. Mm-hmm. But sometimes bringing it down and normalizing this as well is so important uh, rather than it just being a label mm-hmm. and, and really bringing and, and destigmatizing it as well as I said, we've already had lots of messages
1: on this topic. It's clearly something a lot of families are battling with right now. So I wondered, from your point of view as a clinical psychologist, how do you then talk about school refusal and school avoidance? Could you define it for us and talk about some examples even?
0: Absolutely. So I think school refusal, sometimes you know, the word in itself can be a little bit confusing. So I actually much rather prefer the idea of school avoidance because I think that speaks to it far more. Mm-hmm. And this can take on different forms. So it can be where a child or an adolescent is all out avoiding school and not going into school so it might be parents are struggling just to get them in for a couple of days and sometimes unfortunately it actually goes up to sometimes that young person is staying out of school for even weeks so that's can be very problematic. Sometimes what's happening as well, how school avoidance can present, is if young people are actually able to get into school, but once they're in the school, they're really struggling to stay in the class. So they're either visiting the nurse's office very often, they're calling the parents to come and get them from the school, and then anxiety levels are all increasing there. Mm. And then another form of it is children really struggling in the morning to actually get out the door. With the routines, lots of resistance, procrastination. lots of speckles, procrastination, mm-hmm. dragging their
1: feet, all of those factors, mm. exactly. And, you know, my children are nearly six and nearly eight, so I can't, can't kind of speak to that older age group. But, you know, I think it's very, very normal to have this um, at certain times. And I wondered, what are some of the behaviours that are typically seen when it comes to refusing to go to school or even just avoiding it altogether?
0: So when we when when the school avoidance presents, it can present in show up in different ways. So as I said before, we have some kids who are flat out saying we don't want to go to school, and they'll be very vocal about that. But for I would say probably the younger ones, um, they don't really have the emotional vocabulary as the older ones do, and so we tend to see um, more sort of physical complaints. So it might be the stomach ache, it might be the headache, it might be my my uh, my chest hurts. We see a lot of that, and that we've got that brain body connection. So it makes sense Mm -hmm. that that would be happening as well. Um, So it's really important then for parents to be attentive to that, to of course, take that seriously and investigate it. See your pediatrician if you need to. But it's also important to explore whether there are emotional triggers for this Mm -hmm. and whether there's something deeper that's going on. And, of course, to be curious about your child's day. Really go and find out how is your day. Try to understand what are the points, because probably there's the day is okay, but there might be little junctures in the day where something happens, a little hiccup happens, and then something is triggering some of that, um, that worry inside of them and some of those complaints that they're presenting with. Mm-hmm. So it can present like that in, in that way. And sometimes we can just have that flat out, as I say, just resistance. I'm not going and I'm not going to do it.
1: I think, as I said, there was always going to be the odd day where a child does not want to go to school. But when does it tip into something that you would categorise as an ongoing problem that might need a bit more investigation?
0: You're absolutely right. It's completely normal. We all what? even as adults. This yeah. that's what I said to my daughter yesterday. It's <laughs> like news flash. Not all grown ups want to go to work every absolutely. day. Absolutely. Sunday evening. We're all kind of like, oh we have that Sunday evening blues. Yeah. So it's absolutely normal you're right. But with any issue when, when something becomes something that we need to look into and investigate and explore a bit further, it's when it's being quite persistent and when it's becoming quite chronic because we don't want children missing school. We don't want them losing out days and weeks of school. We can't have that happening. Mm-hmm. So if you start to notice that there's a pattern, a pattern developing and it's becoming a bit more chronic, I'd say you need to start taking concern. Um, you need to start expressing that concern and, and, and finding out what's going on and approaching. And you can approach, first of all, you could start with your with the with the, ch- the child's teacher at the school, um, the counsellors at the school. You could even go to your paediatrician as a starting point and just express some of this to them. What have you noticed either in clinic or kind of
1: anecdotally or even with research about common ages for school? School avoidance, or indeed any other risk factors.
0: So, school avoidance can actually happen across the um, across childhood at all the different ages. But again, we know that usually when children are starting off school, so around about the ages that particular age group, it sort of peaks around five to seven, and it peaks again around eleven to fourteen. And if you think about the 5 to 7 sort of age group that's when children are actually starting starting of school and we have that separation anxiety that's really prominent there mm-hmm. so that's when we tend to see it and if you think about the 11 to 14 years old uh, years old they're making that sort of transition isn't it from that middle school to the high school there's all the social demands there's all the concerns the academic demands as well Definitely. but the worries like does my teacher like me do my friends like me this person's thinking about me in this particular way so at those two peaks we tend to see it well that's interesting so we've got a number of messages that
1: actually as you say is a, is across the board let's go to this one um saying hi both my daughter's year 4 so that's what 9 Eight, nine, yeah. who's not so fond of school. Lots of talk and coaching every single day to get her out of the car. There was a time she told me she's finding her subjects difficult and she feels like she's behind compared to her classmates. How can I deal with this? Should I get a tutor? So she feels more prepared and even more competitive. Right.
0: Okay. So with the first part about lots of coaching happening just to get her out of the car. Sounds exhausting. It is exhausting, isn't it? And for parents as well to do that in the morning, I'm sure that is quite cumbersome to do that. So I think that there needs to be a conversation. There needs to be some of that coaching but not in the morning when she's getting out of the car. So if that conversation can be happening before that, in preparation for that, and rather when it becomes a success in the morning, it's about being brave. And I'm really happy. And these are the rewards that you're going to get for being brave and doing. That's these what I was things. about to say. I fi- you find yourself tipping into bribery. Yeah, if you well,
1: go to school today, we'll get a drive-through on the way home. And then it's like uh, I'm running out of. There's no ammunition left.
0: <laughs> well, I think there's a difference. We need to make sure that there's bribery and then there's rewarding good behaviour. So it's it's not bribery. It's working towards well, something. Hang on. Talk me through. This <laughs> so bribery. <Help> us. <laughs> <laughs> so bribery is very much what you're saying. Like if you do this, I will give you this. Mm-hmm. But actually, if we're working towards a reward, it's the child knows in advance. I work towards this. Like what? What, kind can... of, what? kind of what examples? So for an, an example, might be if the child, for example, uh, the child is battling to um, c- conquer some of the worry and they're wanting to build up their, we call it like a bravery muscle. They're trying to be brave. Um, we might say to them, okay, today we're going to work towards these goals. We're going to break the goals down. And if you work towards achieving them, and you can sort of do a little rewards menu as well, so you can sit collaboratively with them and decide. And it doesn't have to be material things. That We don't only have to, it could be a few nice things that they work towards, but it could also be things like spending extra time with the family, uh, choosing a movie that you guys are going to watch uh, at mm-hmm. night, or being the second one to shower, if you know they don't really like showering, being the first one. And they work towards that. And mom and dad uh, and, and the little one, they all work together to tracking the progress I'm meeting my goals and I earn my reward. So it becomes a fun and again, collaborative process and lots of them coming
1: in. We're going to have a, try and have a bit of a quick fire round and help as many as we can, because I know from personal experience just how distressing it can be to have a crying child who doesn't want to go into school. It sets the tone for you as a parent, and ultimately it's something that you want to be able to work together. Um, Sanjay's been in touch saying our daughter Mira was a dream in nursery in her first term. There were six kids in her class. It was perfect. This term they've got 12, and there's always a little hesitation uh, dropping her off. She's fine through the day, but in the car at the gate, there's a few tears. What? changed how can i make it better i've been allowing some screen time in the car to pacifier but it's not working thanks for the help what say you pratna
0: so I think there's so many layers to that, isn't there? So the first one I think is about just the class size changing a little bit um, from going from that six to the 12. And perhaps this little girl is just getting used to the idea. Maybe she had a bit more individual attention in the in the smaller class and just she's getting used to, to that idea. But I think also the morning routine, if we could try to change that up a little bit, that might be useful. And what I always say to parents, because I think sometimes, you know, parents, it, it's natural. You want to do all the coddling and you want to do all the reassuring. It's Absolutely Oops. natural. But sometimes it's about just being a little bit um, kind, kind of a little bit like a bit matter of fact about it. Like, OK, hug, cuddle, uh, kiss and, you know, a high five and, and they through the gate. And then, you know, that kind of thing that can help um, with the with the tears and all of that that's happening. But also, I think the attachment as well is very important. So, if she, just to make sure that she has a secure attachment with her parents, and they can practice that across different settings. So, perhaps she's struggling with some of that attachment now going into school. So, that can be practiced on the weekends as well, like leaving her with another um, in the care of another really trusted caregiver, and for short periods of time that she can be away from her parents as well, so that she can start getting into that um, in, and, and start feeling that trusted attachment as well.
1: One thing that helped us um, at that age was starting to do some play dates with kids in the class as well. So it's like, oh, you get to see, you know, so-and-so today. And, you know, and it kind of making a, a few more bonds within the classroom. I love the fact that you say she's fine during the day. That was always the kicker for me. I'm like, I've just been coaching you through getting you in the gate and then I get a photo five minutes later and you're absolutely happy with Larry and I'm traumatised as a parent. And they are, generally speaking, absolutely fine once they get in the classroom. Um, Thank you for that. I'm going to go to teens now. Anonymous message here for you, Bethany, saying, uh, what about teenagers? My 17-year-old son loathes school, loathes in capitals. He's practically a man. He has a beard and I feel really powerless in our daily discussions about why he should go. Any insights?
0: that's hard That's hard, isn't it and I think um, when it comes because we always want to try to try to jump on the on the before school avoidance becomes more of a chronic issue but if this has become a chronic issue I can totally understand that it is really difficult to have those discussions but you know there's this common idea of um, I don't know if you've heard this phrase like connect before you correct kind of thing so it's connecting with that young person and finding ways to connect with with this young person who's 17 years old and exactly that he's on the verge of, of being a young adult so having the those con- like trying to connect to find out what his interests are what does he want to do what are his aspirations and goals for himself maybe there are certain things that he can explore as alternatives and find out exactly what is there something that can be done in the school context Mm -hmm. are they willing to collaborate with the um the educational staff at the school to try to reintegrate them into that context and i think that's a huge thing isn't it Uh, with parents being able to trust the school to approach the school and work together i think that's a really interesting point
1: because we and i don't know if it's because we pay for education here but that seems to be in this to my mind a bit of an outsourcing idea of being like we drop you off you're the school's problem now and i'll pick you up or i'll see you later whereas actually we are very much on the the same team as as parents and educators and the pandemic i think kind of brought that to light that you know we really do need to work together and improve our communication for that child in their experience both in in, inside and outside of school i like that connect first okay let's see if we can help out d saying any advice for settling into a new school our eight-year-old who is very socially anxious is starting a new one for the summer term as we're moving house and i'm trying to prepare her ahead of time which I think is brilliant because you have got a few months before it's going to be drop-off at that at those new school gates. What would you be doing?
0: I always find it really useful to, when anybody's moving into a new school, to really have the child being very proactive in the process this is the school. Like, what do you what do you want to do when you get there? What do you want to like? What type of friends do you want to have? Researching the school, even looking at pictures of the school, driving past it. the school, Drive look at the uniform exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then they can get that sense of excitement going, and then they can know like it's not the unknown, it's not unfamiliar, and then they can feel a little bit on top of things. Like, okay, this is what I want to actually do. So I think having those open conversations, and I love the fact that there's preparation in this because that really helps the situation. Mm-hmm. So and just involving this young person and exactly what you were saying earlier about play dates and being very like on the wall with it like from the beginning getting uh, to helping that young person find friends and have them over and and connecting in that way
1: not so much of a question but just a comment here saying my daughter's 15 and hates school she mentioned it every day and someday she says she can't do it anymore she's already saying she doesn't want to go to university tells us we're wasting our money she doesn't she doesn't want to grow up and always wishes she was younger what do you think upon hearing that as a child and teen psychologist Prathna
0: I think it, it's so important to understand like school avoidance is I always think of it almost like an iceberg and school avoidance is the tip of that iceberg and if we think about Underneath that iceberg, there are so many factors that could be contributing. And this sounds like a young person who I think would really benefit from talking through what's going on. Maybe there are some academic difficulties. We find this commonly um, with young people really who really dread school, learning, and and the academics of it, and they just don't want to do it, and they feel school's all about that, and then they feel not very competent. Especially actually. here, yeah, you very know, driven. Where,
1: where schools are, and um, when you say talk to someone about that, would that be some, with the parent or or on her own? 15.
0: Right, so I would um, encourage parents, so just as I said earlier about the connect before correcting so to have conversations with her about that and then of course um, again, that she can also speak to somebody at the school if she needs to, um, whether it be a school counsellor, whether it be a trusted teacher at school, encourage those conversations to happen and for the school also to be proactive in Mm -hmm. asking and finding out if there are learning challenges or if there are social difficulties, sometimes it's really, you know, you've got the perspective of the young person but sometimes just having that objective Mm-hmm. Um, perspective as well can also add um, insights into all of this as well.
1: And to the mum of, of this girl, you know, there's that kind of common parenting phrase that you know, as a parent, you're only as happy as your as your happiest or least happy child, and it's true. You know, we all we want to do is make sure our kids are feeling happy and safe. And and in that learning environment, they only really learn if they feel happy and secure. So by establishing that from the outset, so I'm really, really sorry you're going through this, but it does sound like if she is desperately unhappy and it sounds like she is, that maybe you can reach out. If you'd like, just give me a thumbs up on the text and I can connect you with Pratna um, on, uh, on the SMS there. Thank you so, so much for coming in. We were just talking off air. I'm like, I want to talk to you about this. I want to talk to you about that. So we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Such a valuable topic and thank you for all of your messages. And let me tell you, we didn't get to many of them, so you're very much not alone in this. But I really hope this discussion has been useful in helping you move forward with your school avoiding child. You're listening to the UAE's
0: number one talk radio station.
1: This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer
0: on Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: All right, folks, it's confession time. How organised are you when it comes to grocery shopping? Do you prepare a list and stick to it? Or do you wander around like an unsupervised child at a birthday buffet? Um, We are here to help you think about your environment at home if you are looking to lead a healthier life in 2023 and giving you some simple tips and tricks to incorporate into your weekly routine to make sure you are staying on track. We've got fitness expert Nikki Holland with us, aka Nikki Fitness. And Nikki, I wanted to start if it's all right, by asking you what you eat on a typical day. Come on. Um, make me feel bad about the leftover sweet and sour chicken I had at my desk a few hours ago. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what I eat might be different to most people because I train every day and I'm very active in my lifestyle. So with my job where I'm going to clients, I get a lot of steps every day. It's not difficult for me to do that. So my energy expenditure is quite high. Mm-hmm. So
1: And presumably you know exactly what your expenditure is as well. Yes,
2: well, I do use a tracking device. I use the watch. I use a, a Whoop uh, as a wearable device, but they give me an indication. They're not entirely accurate. But for what I eat on the day, it, I tend to focus a lot of my meals around my protein. Um, and since I've started doing that, you know. Four or five years ago, I've paid a lot more attention to the amount of protein I have in my diet, and it's given me uh, much more progress in terms of my performance for recovery, Mm -hmm. my growth and repair of muscle tissue, and how I've got stronger throughout the years because I've been fueling my body correctly.
1: Okay, so for us mere mortals, how can we calculate roughly what we're going to be expending in terms of energy and therefore
2: what we should be taking on? Okay, so you've got what you call your BMR, which is your basal metabolic rate. And this is if you lay in bed all day, you would burn a certain amount of calories. That sounds lovely. Mm -hmm. It does, but you're going to have to eat. So if you lay in bed all day, you can't not eat or or not drink nothing. So um, the importance here is to understand what your basal metabolic rate is. And there's a formula that you can use to do that. And I have it on my website. I'll share with you guys later. There's also understanding how many carbs, proteins and fats, your macronutrients that you need every day. And once you understand what your basal metabolic rate is, so for females it's between 1,500 and 2,000 calories a day, for males it's between 2,000 and 2,500. Now that's just a guideline because based on your individual fitness, mm-hmm. your lifestyle, body, body your composition, habit, body composition, muscle mass, body fat, that number will change. Mm-hmm. But as a as a general guideline, that is what we go from. Then you can calculate out of those 1,500 or 2,000 calories what your macronutrient split would be. So I wanted to talk to yes, you guys today about ma- that split.
1: It's getting mathematical. And it I is. think that's where we start to lose people. So can you hold our hand and guide us through of course. this, Nicky?
2: Um, it's basically just understanding how you split those 2,000 calories throughout the day. So imagine if you've got 2,000 pounds to go and spend, 50% of that can be used to spend carbohydrates, 30% can be used for proteins, 20% can be used for your fats, and that's it. And then as soon as it hits midnight, the next day, you macros start again. But
1: how on earth do you calculate it if you're looking at, okay, I'm just thinking about something like lasagna, for example. So you've got carbs in there, you've got fat in there and you've got your protein. How on earth do you actually work it
2: out? So there's tracking apps that you can use. A good one I use with my clients. It's free. It's My Fitness Pal. Um, my clients are probably nodding now because they know I talk about it a lot. And it's just a really good way to raise awareness of the food you eat on a day-to-day basis.
1: Now let's talk shopping, and I guess controlling your environment because, for an awful lot of people, <clears throat> myself included, um, you know, you might get to a certain time of day, you know, mid-afternoon slump or in the evening, where you're watching TV and you're like, oh, I do quite fancy something, and then I'm like, oh, the kids have got some ice gems in the cupboard, I'll have some of those. One thing when I was on a, on a real Push to kind of lose weight. I was going to say be healthy, but I wanted to lose weight. I'll be honest, was about kind of controlling that environment, and that mm. extended to even going out for dinner. So when we went to I'm something, you know, Maria Benita's for Mexican food, and they bring out the bowl of nachos, I was like, could you please take them away? <laughs> and the, and again, it extends to the home, which it's all very easy to say, you know, just don't have bad foods in the house. You need to control your behaviours, but you do need to also control what comes into the home as well. So yeah. when it comes to shopping. What are some of your top tips before you even get to the shops?
2: So I've got three key tips that I want the listeners to take away from today. So the first one would be um, write a list or have a list either written down or on your phone so therefore you know if you go into the supermarket exactly what you're going to get and try not to deviate away from that. Could online shopping even be more useful so you're not even tempted by things? Online shopping, I knew you were going to say that, that's a tricky one because by a click of a button and they've got offers on, you can add a lot more to your shopping basket than maybe you intended. But if you are there face-to-face, you can control it, I think, a bit better. Okay. Um, uh, so that's the first tip is to, um, to make sure that you're, um, you understand what food you're going to go for and you don't deviate away from that. You stick to your list. The second thing I want the listeners to take away is to make sure that you eat something before you go. So never go food shopping hungry.
1: Or after a night out. Or after or a night th- out, yeah. Or even thirsty.
2: Because yeah. I'm like, oh, All yeah. three are very dangerous. Um, and the reason for that is because you're more likely to put in your basket what you want rather than what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, having some food before you go food shopping, and most of us will probably do our food shop on the weekend, um, making sure you haven't got a hangover, making sure that you maybe go in the morning, not in the afternoon when you're, when you're hungry and you feel that, oh, actually, I'll put that in the trolley or I'll put that as well or that's two for one or I'll have that. And basically, what you're doing there is you're um, you're gonna set yourself up to fail. You're mm-hmm. gonna overindulge, um, so that makes it really really difficult to to not eat it if it's there. Makes sense. And the third third and final tip would be uh, out of sight, out of mind. So if it's not in the cupboards, then you're reducing the uh, the risk of you actually eating it. Um, and then wife, I'm
1: like, ooh, Deliveroo. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, which again is, is is tricky. But my wife is the type of person she will eat foods. She will order something if she wants it and she will have maybe one bite of it if it's a chocolate bar and then she won't eat any more. I'm the opposite to that. If the chocolate bar is there, then it needs to be eaten because otherwise I'll be going back to eat it afterwards. So I'm the type of person, if it's not there, it's not going to bother me. But if it is there, I'll have to finish it.
1: So understanding yourself and your pattern sounds pretty key. So, Nikki, tell us what you always have in your fridge,
2: your freezer, your cupboard just to kind of keep you on track mixture of foods. So I tend to go for the, the balanced diet approach. Um, always some forms of protein, some forms of carbohydrates, mainly vegetables, fruit and vegetables, and um, lots of water. I don't really have fizzy drinks. I don't have that many sweets and chocolates. I feel bad so stay now. I just had, just
1: had a little diet drink in front of you there. <laughs> I Sorry. thought I'd something move away. <laughs> I don't um, drink coffee. I need a little something, a little something. But you obviously are in a very good routine of this and I think for a lot of people you you talk about macros in in a very you know matter of fact way I I think it's really interesting to get an understanding of calories per gram so people can make some informed decisions can you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah sure
2: so um, as we mentioned you have x amount of calories per day those calories will be split into your macronutrients your carbohydrates your proteins and fats now out of those you have um, four kilocalories per one gram for oh, carbohydrates
1: okay okay keep, keep 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 me with you
2: because four I'm kilocalories like of, pro, of um, protein per one gram but nine kilocalories of fat per gram so essentially to take away from that fats are double plus more mm-hmm. of your carbs and your proteins per you. gram alcohol is seven kilocalories per gram so if you think about your your daily allowance, what the foods you eat on a day-to-day basis and obviously the weekend you're expecting it to maybe increase slightly on your caloric intake, you have to then draw it back to, well, how many grams of carbs, proteins, fats and even alcohol am I putting into my body mm-hmm. per one gram?
1: As you said earlier off air, you know, when you're with clients, it's, there's nothing off limits. It's just if it fits your macros.
2: and this is what I really must stress to people is you don't have to cut things out you don't have to drastically change your diet because when you do that that's not going to be sustainable in the long term
1: Not at all all. Um, Let's go to the text line Lauren says Hi both Um, I'm really trying hard to lose weight and I'm down 3 kilos in 2023 by reducing portions and eating earlier in the day but I get really bad sugar cravings after meals especially in the evening Please don't recommend that I eat a date I've tried and it's not the same It's not the same it's not the same Lauren.
2: Um, first of all well done you know it sounds like you're doing great on your fitness journey. Second of all um, I would encourage eating more fruit um, not dates but you know fruits such as oranges, kiwi fruit, uh, pineapple, bananas those types of foods will help with your sugar cravings and your body has uh, those fruits are what we call micronutrients so your body can absorb a lot more vitamins and minerals from those that are going to actually benefit and it can do more with.
1: Lauren, that's not the answer you wanted. You wanted to be like, it's okay to have a Twix.
2: <laughs> it is It is okay. It's all relative. It is okay. You know, I wouldn't say don't not have it. Mm-hmm. Um, but... If it if it fits in with your with your day to day and you've got calories to spend, still have, have a chocolate bar now and again, but just don't it's all in moderation. Don't go overboard. Everything in moderation.
1: And Brahim saying, any ideas for meal prepping for work lunches that are not hot? We do have a microwave, though a few colleagues have got those USB lunch boxes to keep food warm. They sound like a great idea, if, if so maybe potentially dangerous. Um, so Cold lunches during the week, where would you be putting your priorities, e.g. your calories, and making it easy for Brahim and anyone else?
2: Yeah, it's a tricky one because you don't want to take food into work that if you open the lid of the Tupperware box, it's going to smell or yes. stink out of the office. So you Thank have to you. be careful there. Um, wraps are quite a good option. Um, salads are quite a good option with protein in. So, um, you know, you could have your lentils, you could have your, your chicken or a um, piece of, of fish. It's, it's completely down to you how you, how you manage that. Um, but I would always say have a protein shake with you as a supplement um, because protein shakes are quick and easy for you to get enough protein into your diet, but you shouldn't rely on those. You should try and get it from a food source first and use that as a supplement just in addition to.
1: Nikki, last question, which is from me. your kind of top tip for an easy swap. When you're in the supermarket, instead of buying this, buy that. What's been
2: successful for you and some of your clients? Um, Looking at the lighter options, so you can look at... um, going for lighter sauces, lighter spreads, uh, because you know, those are calories if you're putting butter on your toast, you wanna choose the lighter option, which people don't always account for. Um, Lighter options when it comes to drinks. So if you're on your soda drinks and you're gonna go for a a Diet Coke or a Sprite light, those are better choices to make. and also then you could look at possibly going for the more uh, whole grain foods. Mm-hmm. So like your brown pastas, your brown breads, your brown rice, um, because whole grain has a, uh, what we call a higher glyce- uh, sorry, a lower glycemic index. So it takes longer to digest and absorb into the bloodstream, keeping you fuller for longer.
1: Now, if anyone does want your, your m- macro maths, what's the best way of getting in touch?
2: Uh, you can contact me on instagram which is at nikki underscore fitness or at my website which is www.nikki-fitness.com
1: there you go you can just send me the word fit and i will send you the link for that if you want to if you want to get mathematical with your macros and uh, (laughs) work with nikki um, on this moving forward thank you so so much for coming in really do appreciate it and lauren yeah you can have a bit of a twix but maybe not maybe not the whole not the whole thing (laughs) thank (laughs) you i feel your pain you're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. We are talking property this hour with Nina She She's the founder, creative vision officer at Concept Me, French architect and interior designer. She con- uh, created Concept Me in 2009 fresh out of university. She has got her master of architecture. She's been working on commercial and residential properties in Saudi, but also works here in Dubai and in Europe as well and we've stolen you away from your very busy practice to help out with some of the common questions that so many property owners have here in Dubai, which is namely increasing the value of their property. And also some of the troubleshooting that so many people struggle with, with the day-to-day of a big project or indeed a small project. But before we get to that, how do you describe your aesthetic? You know, couldn't you kind of paint us a bit of a picture? So thanks for having me, You're Helen. Welcome. So
3: my personal aesthetic is to create very modern spaces, sleek spaces that I think really represent like our era. So you know, flow, circulation into spaces I think is really part of my personal aesthetic. Relation between indoor, outdoor, both in architecture and interior design is also another important point for me.
1: What about things you hate? Have you got any design pet peeves that you might see? So much, oh, so much. <laughs> okay, what's top? I I think we have enough time for (laughs) that. But I think what I hate the
3: most is when design is not adapted to its context, when design is too generic. So meaning, you know, creating a very organic shape out of nowhere. So for me, design and architecture is something that has to really be anchored within the environment. So Mm -hmm. I think anything out of that,
1: I kind of dislike. Um, Let's talk Adding value to property. It's an interesting time in the property market. Some people are buying to own, to live Absolutely. in with their family. Some people looking to, to flip. Um, and if you are looking at adding value, which I think everybody is, yeah. whether it's you know immediately or, or long term, where are some of the smartest places to spend your money?
3: Absolutely, and I think especially right now in Dubai, it's a really like hot topic. Everybody wants to buy and sell and it's a really right time to enhance your property, whether you own, whether you're thinking to buy and, you know, refurbish. I think there are different steps uh, that you could, you know, go ahead in order to enhance your property. Number one would be very simple steps like painting your walls, changing your flooring. Think in terms of shell, you know, so think what are the biggest surfaces that I have in a property that would put the more impact into a visitor or a potential buyer or, you know, even if you're trying to sell, what could make the most impact on my space? So don't present your space with a red wall. It's very personal. So I'm not saying also don't don't have your walls all painted white because then it's very imper- impersonal. But I think painting your walls, neutral color, earthy color, something that can really create a cozy atmosphere is really the way to go. Um, you know, get rid of those old past decade uh, 60 by 60 tiles that oh, all of everyone the... Everyone has them. Yeah, <laughs> all the Dubai commercial <laughs> properties have, you know. Go with something more personal. Um, lay a parquet, a vinyl flooring, or even another tile if you're a bit more brave and want to go into more... Work So I think, you know, build it layer by layer. Mm-hmm. Lighting is another major point. I always say lighting is life. I could either hate or love a space because of lighting. And I think the way you lit your space really has a reflection on, you know, on how your journey in the space is. So, Mm -hmm. you know, whether you want to sell your space, enhance your space, look at your lighting, make sure that you don't have lighting that is too cold. You know, I always enter residential spaces with a very bright white lighting. And for me, this is like horrendous. You know, it's it's a nightmare. It feels like you're the dentist. (laughs) Absolutely. And like, I'm sure sometimes you might be in a restaurant and might not even... Um, enjoy it fully, but that's really because of the lighting. So you know so interesting.
1: So it can be a subconscious thing where you're not yes. able to relax into yes. a space.
3: And then, of course, you can, you know, if you're braver and more courageous into your flipping property, you could go to spaces like Wet areas, so kitchen and bathrooms are are major. You know, again, having old cabinetry, cabinetry, wooden cabinetry, those are, you know, past era. So, you know, go modern, uh, add nice earthy colors that, again, appeal to the, you know, highest amount uh, bathrooms. Make sure that you have sleek bathrooms. That you look at the details of your bathroom. Again, all of these are really adding to the value of the of the properties.
1: Before we even get to making changes, you've got to find someone to help you do this. And I know this is a really big yes. problem for a lot a lot of people in Dubai. Once once they board a property, or even when they're looking at buying, because you might need to get someone to work with you. You know, months or even a year in advance. Yeah. How can you find a good contractor? Nina?
3: I mean, all my white hair are because of <laughs> contractors. So I oh. personally, I should build my contractors for all my <laughs> color coloring of hair. But no, seriously, I mean, I think definitely that's the biggest nightmare of any of our client or anyone that literally want to go into flipping properties. Is how do I find the right partner? Because more than just a builder is a partner into your project. So mm-hmm. I think. Number one priority, you know, like people have a tendency of going to their friend's home or, you know, seeing a perfect space and say, who's the contractor? But I think very important, who's the person behind the contractor? It's not just about having a finished, perfect work. It's to making sure that the person that you're going to hire is going to share your values Mm -hmm. because... Usually the gap between contractors that are very technical and are on a due date and, you know, versus the client that has a particular vision. Especially for uh, their home. Which yeah, is so for personal. their home. And they don't necessarily have the technical wording. So there's always a lot. If you don't hire a designer, which I really recommend you to do in general, if you don't have that designer with you, I think it's very important to... Have somebody that has your values, that will be understanding and will really deeply listen to what you're explaining them. Because unless you have that, your results are going to be very far from what you're expecting. And contracting and building is chaos. Like, there's no, like, there's no. Easy way out of it, you know. This is what we do on a daily basis. Keep on yeah, pushing through. Yeah,
1: yeah. What about if someone's looking to sell right now? What are some of some quick, effective, and even cost effective changes to capture the attention and yeah. yes, the highest price?
3: As I already uh, mentioned earlier, paint the walls fully, uh, change your flooring. You know, again, if you have a flooring that's a bit. Uh, that has too much personality. So let's say if you have a a dark floor or a floor that's completely impersonal, like 60 by 60 tiles, go find a very light, grey, you know, parquet or very, um, you know, monochromatic and and lay it on the floor. It will have a huge impact. Doors, for example, you know, I'm sure you've seen in Dubai properties, those horrendous, like cherry, dark brown, red tone. Yeah change your doors or just don't even change repaint your doors Mm -hmm. white color very simple try to you know transform your space as simple as possible and as appealing to the highest number keeping it warm and cozy i think this is very important
1: last question are trends important to you um and if so any predictions for the years ahead So trends,
3: I think, when you're in the design field are always very important. When you're a creative, you should always be on top of your game. But I think they are important to me, even though design is something timeless. So I think when you, some clients, you know, ask us to always have timeless design, which there are elements, you know, during time that, you know, you keep repeating. Mm. But there are specific trends really uh, this year, I think post-COVID, that people like more and more, like indoor-outdoor, like how to feel that you are in an indoor space, but you could also feel outdoor. You know, like, I mean, I would say four or five months of the year, we don't really live outdoor here. So how to bring the exterior in, how to feel more zen in the home, you know? Um, so all of those are very trendy. indoor-outdoor wellness is is one of the top trends of 2023, yeah.
1: So many more questions for you, but thank you for coming in and making time. Your Instagram is a fantastic resource for all sorts of information. What's the best way of finding you, Nina?
3: So, you can find us on all the social media platforms. On Instagram, we always post on a weekly basis daily tips you know, paint your walls, change your parquet, change your lighting fixtures. So, you could find us on social media at Concept New by Nina and you can follow all those daily tips and apply them.
1: Nina Pavresh thank you so, so much for coming in. Thank you in. for having me. You can just send the word property in. I'll be happy to send. that link so you can have a look and contact Nina for any projects you've got coming up and as I said check her out as a resource some brilliant tips and tricks for making your house a home and maybe making your home make you some money as well. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer
0: with ProPlan where the number one ingredient is always high quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken.
1: We are talking animals this hour. Joining us live in studio is Dr. Joe Edwards from rather confusingly Vets and Pets live on Pets and Vets. How are you, Dr. Joe? Hi Helen, thanks for having me on the show. Get ready for a busy one—lots, <laughs> lots, and lots of questions. Before we get to That's the text okay. line, though, and we are going to be talking about osteoarthritis in dogs, um, I want to hear about your setup at home. What's what's the menagerie in the Edwards household? It's not too bad, I think, as far as vets go. I've got things fairly under control. Because sometimes they're like, yeah. "Okay, there's five cats <laughs> and four dogs, and we've got a tortoise. I think there's a hedgehog in the back." And be... so, for you, I try and limit the number of waifs and strays we've, that come through. We've the got the door. a one-in-one-out yeah. policy. Yeah,
4: but- so I've got got two cocker spaniels same as me yeah tell, us, tell me about those how old and what uh, are their names? so I've got a, an eight-year-old called amber and a two-year-old um, black cocker called sooty and they're polar opposites they in personality really? yeah. Oh, yeah
1: how, how interesting
4: yeah. do they get on um the older one tolerates the younger one but it's been a long road, same, a long road. Same,
1: same as ours we have lots of guarding behavior um mm. and lots of jealousy if yes. one success yeah. next to me on the sofa the other one will just glare and they often create a distraction so the one jumps off and they get you know jump up on the sofa in their place yeah yeah it's like having more children it to is be, to it be is honest. they're very much part of the um, and the any any he- health issues with them because we are going to be talking about some some doggy doggy issues yours are you guys all in, all in good health so far
4: so actually the older one does have osteoarthritis and that's what i wanted to speak yeah. about today because it's such a big problem in dogs and i think it goes really um like widely unrecognized mm-hmm. and it's It's so prevalent. I think people don't realise just how prevalent it is it affects sort of 35 percent of dogs of all ages um but probably about 80 percent of dogs over the age of
1: eight so it is sadly why we had to say goodbye to our old dog oh. lizzie but she was 12 and she was in an awful lot of pain mm-hmm. so with that older category but what about certain breeds or any you've got a, a bit of a predisposition to osteoarthritis
4: there are a lot of breeds that are predisposed to it um certain you know large breeds tend to be affected mm-hmm. um labradors Golden retrievers um german shepherd dogs tend to have lots of problems with their hips and really it all comes down to sort of um, poor confirmation and we st- the the whole disease process starts off with imperfectly fitting joints and then you get abnormal sort of loading through those joints mm-hmm. over the years and you end up with this sort of progressive um disease where you get inflammation and pain because of that abnormal loading, and and with pain, then obviously you get sort of impaired mobility, and they just don't want to move, and it's and this vicious
1: cycle. Weight gain, which obviously putting yeah. more load on the joints. So, how can mm. you then manage it? What do you tend to recommend if a, I was going to say a patient comes through the door, but yes, a patient mm. and their and their owner comes through.
4: I mean, it's really such a multimodal disease um, that, in terms of management and how we tackle it, um, but there's so much we can do for patients with with osteoarthritis. And I think just because um, a, a lot of sort of owners don't necessarily recognise the signs of it initially. Um, and it can be anything from sort of, you know, walking with a slightly stilted gait,
1: um, being a bit slow to rise. Mm. Um, we had reluctance to jump off sofas and kind yeah. of trouble getting in and out of her bed. Yeah. Really sad and,
4: to see. and people often just put that down to, you know, oh, my pet's getting old. But actually, no. It is a sign of sort of arthritis, and it's important that we pick up on those sort of subtle signs. Sometimes they can even just be a little bit more sort of grumpy than usual, and we don't really know why it's happening. Which I think it's really important that if you are noticing sort of any changes in your pet's behaviour, no matter how subtle they are, that you just go in and get it checked.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, what about treatment then? In management, is it medications? Is there is it massages, lifestyle changes, mm-hmm. hydrotherapy? We tried as well. Yeah,
4: there's lots of different things that you can do. To to manage it. So, first of all, obviously, it's important that we try and load those joints. Um- correctly in a nicer way so we recommend things like um using ramps to help them get out of cars so that they're not jumping down onto their mm. you know sore elbows or shoulders that kind of thing helping them up and down the stairs you know if you've got tiled floors at home that you're putting rugs down or things so that they've got a bit of traction and that they can get up um, and that using things like padded orthopedic bedding or something so they're really you know oh, nice and comfy at night time okay.
1: um, so lots, lots that can be done lots
4: that can be done But we also combine that obviously with um, medications that work in various different ways um, that provide pain relief and also have an Mm anti-inflammatory effect. But what's really important is to help sort of keep them moving um, and build up the muscles as well. And that's where physiotherapy often comes into play. So um, we usually work alongside physios that will recommend sort of certain exercises. So sort of global exercises that will help work the big Um, sort of muscles and then smaller um, stabilising exercises that will work on sort of stability and proprioception to get those little muscles firing and still moving. And I think, you know, things like just keeping them moving with swimming, like you say, hydrotherapy, helps to sort of build the muscle support around the joint so that there's less instability um, and it helps them to sort of burn calories uh, and and weight control is actually the biggest thing. So,
1: Well, uh, thank you. I feel like I, I wish you were with me five years ago when we were going through this with Lizzie. But if anyone does have any questions relating to this, or perhaps this is raising a few red flags and things you've noticed in your own pet, get in touch osteoarthritis um, topic of the afternoon. But we are going to be going to text line and answering your questions. Dr. Joe Edwards is with us from Vets and Pets. We've had um, questions about scratching. Uh, we've had questions about what to expect um, after neutering cookies going in for the snip we'll be finding out more about that um and also about keeping cats indoors when is it cruel and when is it kind if you've got any questions get in touch and i want to know give me a thumbs up give me a thumbs down do you say i love you to your pets do you say love you to yours yes i do all the time i I do (laughs) like i I put i took them in last night because they sleep in the kitchen and i put i put the gate up and i was like night night love you doggies And i was like do they know what i'm saying i don't i don't care if they do or they don't Probably more than the rest of the family. And I think hopefully they appreciate it as well. Um, Great question here from Shaheen saying, my lab mix cookie is being neutered on Tuesday. What should I expect? He's 18 months old. We've had him for about three months. He's pretty boisterous and I'm worried he won't rest after. Good question, Mm -hmm. because it is very much a routine operation. But when it's when it's your dog, your family, you're like, how is this going to work?
4: Exactly. And some of those um, bigger dogs and labs, they are just quite bouncy breeds and it is really hard to keep them settled. Usually when they come home from surgery, they're a little bit quieter on the day that you take them home. Um, and by by the following day, the, all the anaesthetic medications have worn off and they're back to their sort of, you know, bouncy selves. Um, we usually send them home with a, a buster collar around um, the neck as well to the, stop them the licking. the co- cone of shame? The cone of shame, yeah, the cone of shame to stop them licking at the wound. And it's really important that you keep that on. Um, and for the first 24 hours or so, they bash into everything and bash into your legs and bash into the walls. The turning, and
1: turning uh, circles completely yeah. compromised.
4: Yeah. It's a bit of a disaster. But if you are concerned about them being too bouncy, um, you can have a chat with your vet and see if they stock any um, supplements or calming aids one of the ones that we have in the clinic is is called Zilkeen, and it's um, sort of a natural supplement that can help sort of calm them and take the edge off so that's something that you could consider um, sort of Mm
1: -hmm. post-operatively so 18 months is a bit of a tricky age because he's you know a bit of a teen so mm -hmm. you know and as you said, lab mix, pretty boisterous. Um, when can you start start doing walks and getting back into your normal routine and burning off some of that energy? I mean,
4: we'd usually say for the first couple of days, just, um, you know, toilet walks on a lead. So not bounding around or doing anything crazy because mm-hmm. the procedure is still done under a general anaesthetic. So it's good to take it easy for the first couple of days. And then after that, we can start introducing um, short walks. Normally, your vet will do a post-operative check after, after, say, two days anyway after surgery. So once you've had the all clear from that, then you can start just doing some
1: short walks and things. And in terms of behaviour, do you tend to notice much change in behaviour, especially boy dogs post-snip, for want of a better word?
4: It's really variable. And we don't really sort of know how castration is going to affect them until after we do it. Um, in the in the UK they actually have a chemical implant that they can do um instead of really? castration yeah and they last for 6 or 12 months and it's reversible so you can if you like <laughs> test the effects of castration on your dog without having sort of a permanent um That's really interesting. Option. Why
1: why would people I mean unless they're looking to breed mm. them of course. Why would people prefer that than going for the old um She said, snipping her fingers together.
4: Well, sometimes they might want to see how it affects their dog's behaviour, especially if you've got a dog that has got any pre-existing behavioural problems. Um, You know, maybe they're fearful or they show signs of aggression. Sometimes by castrating them, we can actually make those problems worse. So... Um It's important to discuss with your vet if your dog does have any behavioral problems whether castration is actually the right thing to do for them, and the the implant just sort of gives you that reversible option of testing it and to see
1: Dawns saying we use the post surgery vest for our dogs absolutely mm. brilliant compared to the cone. these look like a bit like a baby grow don't they They
4: do they do yeah, and some people really like them, some people just prefer the cone it's down to
1: down to preference loving the photos, guys, thank you so so much, and I want to know, do you say? I love you to your pet. The internet is divided. I don't know or care if my dogs understand, but yes, I do. I tell them I love them when I leave the house in the morning in a very kind of love you doggos and then when I tuck them in at night. (laughs) But it's a message here saying, one of my cats' name is Chewy. He's nine years old. He acts like a kitten and I want him to live to 100 years. He licks my face while purring. So I reply back, I love you too. Oh, Dr. Jo Edwards is in the studio. She is rather confusingly from Vets and Pets, fantastic clinic there on Our Wassel Road in Jumeirah. Um, can I ask you about getting into veterinary work? Yeah, was this something you wanted to do as a child, or when did it kind of come to you? This was going to be your your life's work? Because I think it is being a vocation rather than the job, to be honest.
4: Absolutely, yeah. It takes up so so much of your time and is sort of all encompassing. That mm. it, it definitely is. I think I was I was bottle feeding a lamb uh, out with my auntie when I was eleven years old, and that's when I
1: said to her, "I want to be a vet when I grow up." And then after that, it just stuck. So, oh, and any surprises along the way as it lived up to your, you know, your expectations of as eleven year old? It's it's a really fun career. Because it's so diverse, you're doing a different thing
4: every day. Mm-hmm. And even now, having been graduated for so long, every day is a school day. There's all every case is always a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fun, it's interesting, and it's such a wide variety. You know, if I was in human medicine, I'd be specialised in one particular field. Mm-hmm. Whereas as a vet, you know, one day we're a dentist, the next we're an oncologist. So you know, it's really we put many different hats on.
1: Are there any patients? human or indeed furry that stay with you when you think about some kind of career highlights?
4: Oh, I have lots of clients that um, that become sort of personal friends favorites? because I see them sort of so often oh, and over the years wow. and that's that's really nice. That yeah, you do free. get to know them very
1: well. Well, thank you for your time this afternoon. We've got many questions we're going to be getting through the next 10 minutes. And as I said, send in a question, a query, a photo and let me know, do you say I love you to your pet? That will automatically put you in the draw to win not just a uh, supply of pet food from Purina Plan, but we'll throw in some supplements, some toys some treats as well Going to the text line um, Aoife is saying, we got two cats from a rescue in early December I know they had cat flu at the rescue at the time In the last week or so, one of the cats has been coughing, sneezing and has a runny nose, otherwise seems fine and well Could he have cat flu from the rescue and it's taken this long to present or an allergy to something in our house that didn't show up for the first few weeks Does this warrant a trip to the vets?
4: So it's a little bit unusual for cats to cough. Um, So, What does it even sound like?
1: (laughs) Yes, I am. Are you making me to do it on the radio? Yeah, go on.
4: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It probably doesn't sound like that. Um, So if your cat is coughing, it probably is worth going and getting it checked out by the vet. If it's more sneezing, runny eyes, discharge from the eyes or nose, then it could very well be um, a recrudescence of the cat flu. One of the agents that causes cat flu is actually the herpes virus and that's very similar to the cold sore virus in humans. So it can remain dormant and then come back in times of stress mm. when they're a bit
1: stressed or run down. A bit like us. So yeah, flu can definitely come back. So what would you recommend for Efa and this, uh, this sneezy cat? So
4: in some cases of mild cat flu, just as in humans, we don't need any specific treatment. Yeah, like rest and relaxation, watch yeah. some daytime TV,
1: have a nice honey and lemon. Exactly.
4: <laughs> and they, you know, they it, it will be self-limiting. They will get over it. There are certain multivitamins and supplements that you can use that help. A common one that we use um, is called Flumax or complivit. And they can be really helpful. It's only really if they're unwell, sort of off their food. Mm-hmm. They're really snotty. They have like a yellowy green discharge from the nose. They're just looking really groggy. Then it's worth going into the vets and getting it treated.
1: Okay, if I really hope that helps um, give you a bit of guidance there. And um, we're talking... Well, quite a few cat questions today, Jo. Um, Melanie's saying, Hi both. We adopted our kitten back in the summer. She's eight months old, spayed, vaccinated, chipped, etc. She was semi-wild from birth until we got her at about 13 weeks, living with her mum and litter mates outside but fed by someone. She is keen to go outside, dashes for the door, looks longingly out of the window, but we're really worried she won't come back or get hurt. We've got a good-sized home and can't help but feel we're cooping her up a bit. I work from home, so she does have company most of the day and we play with her. Which option is kinder? Will she just adapt to being indoors?
4: That's a great question and some cats really adapt well to becoming sort of domesticated pets and are quite Mm -hmm. happy on the sofa being fed and cuddled and watching TV with you in the evening but some cats just have this urge to be back out there playing on the streets and it's what they know and love and a, a little part of me sometimes does think that some cats you know prefer to be in that kind of environment. So it really depends very much on the individual cat. But you can certainly consider giving her garden access um, just so that she's getting a taste of the outside.
1: And then I guess in terms of other tips, you know, make sure she's well fed before she goes out so she's not looking yeah. for food when yeah. she goes and we'll, we'll come back quite happily let us know how that goes um i don't know if you can help this has just come in on the text line um saying our dog has just been diagnosed with epi exocrine pancreatic insufficiency you're not thinking okay so you know what i'm talking about this is good what what, what <laughs> is there a diet you recommend um and how can we manage this so this is um, a condition
4: whereby the pancreas isn't producing um, enough enzymes that helps to break down the food. So quite often we'll, we'll, supple- we'll give them sort of supplements that are digestive enzymes mm-hmm. that will help um, in that process of breaking down foods. The one that we usually commonly get here is called Lipex. So, yeah, your vet should be able to prescribe that with you and then recommend an appropriate diet.
1: Question here. This is from Misha saying, Ticks. Oh, do not get me started on ticks. Um, Our dog is infested in the armpits, can't get rid of them. Do we need to get the house sorted out or any on the spot treatments? Um, We've tried a couple, but they haven't been effective. Right. So, in our not old house, our old, old house, we had our two dogs, then Lizzie and Jarvis, and it was an ongoing battle. These our dogs would get them behind their ears like you're saying them in, in armpits in like the cracks of their paws we would spend a many unhappy evening there with like a little bottle of kind of rubbing alcohol and tweezers and just be taking off tens if not hundreds of them we'd moved house, finished what exactly do you need to be aware of when it comes to ticks in particular?
4: I think you're absolutely right it really depends on where you live I, was, I either it tend so to see... Say- We usually either see patients that are completely infested with them or people that have never seen a tick on their Mm -hmm. dog in their life. So I think you tend to be in an area where they're really prevalent or not on the whole. However, because ticks spread diseases, you've probably heard of Lyme disease in humans. Uh, in, in pets the most common disease that we see here is a disease called ilichia, which can have really sort of variable but quite nasty symptoms and be quite a serious condition so it's really important to keep up with your dog's tick control and one of the they, they come in lots of different sort of forms but there's a spot on lots of spot on different treatments that you can apply to the back of the neck but there's also a tablet that you can give just once every three months called Brevecto and that's really effective it's that's that's what yep. we
1: ended up using, and yep. and I know it's a very drastic measure. Moving house? No, I'm joking, but um, but it it really was changing environments. So I think you can get pest control to come in and you know really blast it
4: yeah it's really important that you treat the environment as well otherwise you're not going to eliminate the the infestation we so. tried it
1: all like on the spot you know back at back mm-hmm. of the neck these really stinking collars but it was ending up taking the tablet yeah um that kind of really that really fixed it um, i have to say um there's a lot of love on the text line for everyone's animals today Natasha's saying not only do i tell them i love them But it makes all the difference after a super hard day to come home to my girls, my cats, and force a cuddle, get a kiss on my nose from them. They really mean the world to me. And I think this is what I really kind of want to say about kind of how lovely it is to have animals. I think they really can make a house a home. And for me having kids and, you know, you have a, a daughter as well. It's really lovely to raise kids around that as well because they've got such a love and respect for animals. I would say almost my daughters are almost overconfident. With animals, are you seeing that in your girl?
4: Yeah, definitely. She's she's very very confident about animals and uh, it's like going of like pointed you know, that out
1: fingers up the nose. And when we yeah. when we were back in the UK, because we don't actually see that many dogs where, where we are. There's a few dogs in the neighbourhood in England. I could walk in the woods. You we had you know dogs bounding towards us. So walk you know walk down the high street. Um, and my kids are so like, oh, do you remember we met Flora? She was five. We remember we met Poppy. She was fifteen. And I just think it teaches this respect, but also responsibility. Um, Absolutely,
4: yeah. It really does lovely. teach them uh, some good respect. And I think that's something I've instilled with my daughter from a really young age. She knows how to approach a dog and to um, ask. Yeah, and to ask.
1: We're like, you have to ask an owner. Is it okay to say hello to your yeah. to your dog? You you can't just bound up and be like, hi, forty five kilo Caesar, and then you know, stick your face in in his face. Um, I think we're going to squeeze in one last question if you don't mind Suleiman's been taking care of a mother cat and kitten for about six months they're living in the building parking lot I won't let anyone near them even though they often run behind me to let me know they want to be fed is this some kind of disorder it sounds like they're just they're just enjoying the setup to be honest what do you think
4: they are yeah um obviously it's nice to be able that you're feeding them and looking after them they probably just don't want to be caught.
1: Yeah, yeah I think that's a, that's a bit of a misconception. It's like not, not all animals necessarily Need want to be rescued or we, want to be rescued. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to try and squeeze. Actually, we've got time for one more question, if you don't mind. Um, it's a cat question. <laughs> and I think Elaine's question might kind of resonate with a lot of people. We've got a cat called Mr. J. Mr. J is nine months old, neutered, been going outside for about two months, loves it, sticks to the back garden um, or next door shed. There are lots of neighbourhood cats. Um, Once it's on the fence, they have a bit of a stare off and he's managing that well. But there is a mean cat Mm. a bully cat there've been a few yells and chases and our boy comes back through his cat flap but the cat flap is li- flat, cat flap is linked to his chip, so you, the other one doesn't get in i uh, don't like the thought of him being bullied and wonder if there's anything we can do to dissuade the mean cat or is this just a strange friendship they have oh. to work it out turf wars <laughs> yeah
4: absolutely um you could if if the yeah if the, uh, the cat hasn't been neutered neutering the cat that's in the garden so could do, reduce aggression really? and dominance you do so trap if it's a stray
1: yeah you could consider Oh, that's interesting and in terms of deterring I guess anything that's deterrent would be unpleasant for Mr J as well
4: it's difficult to deter cats that are free roaming really I think she's going to struggle on that front there yeah
1: Interesting. Okay, it might be we're talking about neutering a lot today. Lots of snips yeah. around. Um, Joe, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for coming in. No
4: problem. Thanks so much All for having me. All the very best the cockers.
1: Can I join your cocker club? Yes, join my cocker club <laughs> Dubai on Facebook. Are, are there any meetups? <laughs> we have had a few. We have had a few at the dog park. Yes. Oh, thank you so so much. You can find Thanks, Dr. Joe Edwards there at Vets and Pets there on Al Road, Jameera Three. If you want her details, drop me a little message and just say pet, and I will send that your way. Um, and tell you what, we've had some brilliant messages and gorgeous photos. Thank you, everyone, for being in touch. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai I 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m.